Good morning. Guess what today is? It's a Romans day. It's the last Romans day. It's a very, very sad day. It's a very happy day. We're finishing Romans today. How cool is that? That's awesome. In uh, uh, April, Easter, we'll just mark it at Easter. Easter, we'll, we'll celebrate three years of services as a church. And what will we have covered in that time? Romans. <laughs> that would be enough, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be enough. That would be enough. But in addition to Romans, we will have covered Philippians, Ruth, Proverbs. We'll have had topical sermon series on all kinds of things. Yeah, Faith of Our Fathers, going through the Old Testament. Uh, American Gods, where were some of the other ones? I wrote them down. Uh, who is Jesus? Why God became man? That's a lot. That's really cool. And if we get through this morning, yeah, Romans will be a part of that. That's exciting. Today we end Romans. Romans ends with a warning and with a promise. That's pretty typical for a letter of the New Testament or even a sermon. Like remember when we studied on the, the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of sweetness all the way through, but it ends with a very strong warning and a promise, right? So Jesus ends and he says, all right, this is it. There are two ways to live. There's the straight and the narrow. There's the wide path that everyone takes. There are false teachers and you have to watch out. They're going to try to pull you from the straight and narrow. Beware of them. Two ways to live. You build your foundation on me and my words, and you'll withstand the storms of life. You build your foundation on something else. You don't pay attention to what I say and obey it. You're like the man who builds his house on the sand. And that's it. It's done. So today we come to the end of Romans. There's a warning and there's a promise. And this is the warning. The warning is that wherever God's at work to do something good, Satan is at work to destroy it, to tear it down, to undo it. And his principal tool for that is division. So the warning is against division and divisive people. This is what Satan does. He destroys by dividing. This is his pattern throughout history. So if you go back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, what happens? God gives Adam a simple command, right? You can have all the trees of the garden except for one. And what does Satan do? He starts triangulating, right? He goes to Eve and he says, uh, did God really say that? He questions God. And in questioning God, he sets Eve against both God and Adam. He divides. He comes in between them. He creates a little triangle of doubt where he's the only person that she can truly trust. It's the wrong person. So Adam and Eve are divided. Eve isn't following Adam's leadership. Now she's following the serpent. And that leads to a division between God and man. Which leads to a division between heaven and earth. And the work of God in the gospel is a work of reuniting and reconciling things that have been divided. Reuniting heaven and earth, reconciling God and man, reconciling husband and wife and father and son and mother and daughter. Building a new family. Building a family called the church. So guess what Satan does? 
as God does that work of rebuilding and reconciling and building a new family, Satan goes right back to work to divide the thing that God is building. So Paul leaves us with a warning. Okay, today's passage, Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, so let me say this at the outset. You only really need to be worried about division in a church that's committed to unity. Unity as opposed to uniformity. There are plenty of churches that don't actually have to worry about division, and that's because those churches are by nature divisive themselves. They are the divisive ones. They are churches that are not built around unity, but around uniformity. And so they've separated themselves from everybody who doesn't agree with them on every one of their particular opinions. That's a church that's united in all of their opinions, all of their little things, all of the minors. And they let you know that when you walk through the doors. You're not welcome here unless you jump through every one of our hoops. To become a member here or to lead or preach or teach, you have to subscribe to every single opinion that we hold, extra-biblical, not clear in Scripture, additions, extrapolations, implications, all the little peculiarities of us. Denominations can work that way too, and there are hundreds of little tiny denominations and churches that are uniform in their beliefs and practices, and it happens a lot. The homeschool co-op forms... And then they decide they have all things in common and the homeschool co-op forms their own little church because they all believe there's only one way to properly educate your kids in a godly manner. They don't want to live with anybody else. They don't want to deal with any kind of tension. They don't want to do the work of unity. So they form around their peculiarities and their opinions. And they form a crusty homeschool church, and then they try to call a pastor, and they can never find a pastor that is sufficient for them because he doesn't line up with everything that they already believed. So they cycle through. And then the biggest alpha patriarch sort of takes the role of pastor, and then the kids all sort of like graduate and go their own way and don't want to have anything to do with it, and then they dissolve. That's what happens. In 2020, people were making decisions about controversial things. Had to. Controversial things were happening. Because many churches had no practice of working through conflict or fighting for unity, they just split. And they formed more fractious churches. Not because they suddenly grew spines and 
really just became courageous in the midst of hard times. No, most of those splits were led by men who were cowards for decades in their own churches and had refused to deal with the sins of their people and they just saw their opportunity to get out. There are all kinds of other reasons at play too. Very much like the divisions going on in the church at Corinth where everyone was saying, I am of Paul and I am of Peter and I am of Apollos and I am of Jesus. Have you ever met somebody who claims that they just follow Jesus? And what that means is they just sort of follow themselves and it turns out their vision of Jesus is just themselves, it's a mirror reflection. So all of Jesus' opinions line up with all of their opinions and they just follow Jesus. And that makes them better than you. And if you follow Jesus as well as them, you'd come to all the same conclusions and opinions that they did. Divisive churches. On the flip side of that, you have massive big tent evangelical megachurches where everything is just sort of lowest common denominator. And nobody really believes in much of anything except that conflict is bad and we shouldn't have any of that. They paper over challenges and controversies, and they have a broad sort of superficial unity, but really they're just united around one thing, and that's the charismatic leader at the top of the food chain. They don't have anything else to unite around. So then what happens? Well, from within the church, another younger charismatic leader rises up, and he draws people, he sees like the, the difficulties and the challenges and some things that people don't like, and so he like... He's charismatic too, and he draws people to himself, and he's sort of like internally critical, and he draws enough people to himself, and then he decides, well, it's time for me to go and start my own thing, and then you have a split around a charismatic leader, and then you have a megachurch that's superficial and united around a charismatic leader, and then what happens? It just repeats, right? It just keeps cycling through. If we're going to be a biblical church, we have to be committed to unity. Not a superficial unity, not uniformity, but real unity. And to do that, we have to define what the primary issues are, the issues we will fight over, and what the secondary issues are. What are matters of opinion that we're going to live with each other on? What do we fight over, and what are we free about? What do we hold with a closed fist? And what do we hold with an open hand? Where do we draw our lines? If we're going to build a church with a uh, vision for biblical unity, we have to understand what is primary and what is secondary. What do we divide over? Where do we fight? What arguments do we decide, eh, we'll keep that in-house? We'll keep it cordial. We'll agree to disagree. We need to do the work of figuring that out if we're going to be a church that is unified. And we have done that. There are a lot of things that we are open-handed about. And that allows us the freedom then, because we've defined it, to be very firm and hardline, strong and committed when it's time to fight over things that we're closed-fisted about. And that can be very confusing to a certain type of person. Because they see us being generous and open-handed over here, and they see us fighting over there, and they're like, I don't get it. It's only confusing because they're the ones confused. They've not thought it through. 
So they see us being open-handed over here, and they're like, well, you guys are so generous and open-handed, you must be liberals. And there are, there are churches in this community that have actually accused us of being a liberal church because of that. And then they see us over here when it comes down to a primary issue, and we're like ready to go to war. And they're like, you are so far right. Like, right is left to you. <laughs> It's just like, no, we're just not confused. We know what we're going to fight about, and we know what we're not going to fight about. And so it's not just the gray muddle that you live with. We've defined essentials, and we've defined non-essentials. So we're not uptight about opinions. We can be open-handed about them, because we know the difference between opinion and clear teaching of Scripture. We've defined that. We've seen it. We've allowed Scripture to define it. So we don't have to be wishy-washy about non-negotiables. If we do that well, Satan is going to try to divide us. He's going to try to split us over things that don't matter and get us to major on the minors. As we build a church culture and make decisions about things, and as families in our church make decisions about things that are matters of opinion, those opinions, and they'll be strong, are going to threaten to become wedges in our unity. Satan will use all of that to try to divide us. He'll use us, all kinds of different people. Sometimes he'll use wolves, just evil people who want to destroy and sow chaos, but often he'll use you and me. He says that the divisive person is ruled by their appetites. And here's the truth. We are, each one of us, tempted to be ruled by our appetites. The degree to which we give ourselves over to our appetites and to serving them instead of serving Jesus is the degree to which we will be tempted to engage in divisive behavior. So what are your appetites? And are you committed to fighting them? What do you want? What are the struggles you can't overcome? What are the places where you're weak and your sins might overcome you? Think about that for a minute because those are the places where you will be tempted to draw hard lines and cause division. The places where you're tempted and weak, you take those places, you add a little bit of fear, you add a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of insecurity, and then you wake up to find that you're the divisive one. And the scary thing is you may never know that that's what's happened because you just think you're right. And you're fighting for something that you've confused between your belly and Jesus. So what are the sins that rule you, that knock at the door? Like Cain's sin, knocking at the door. What are the appetites that threaten to control you? Are you the kind of person that just wants to feel loved and accepted? Are you afraid of not being loved and accepted? Are you willing to do anything for approval? 
Is that the place where you're weak? Are you going to be tempted to manipulate people into seeing you a certain kind of way so that they approve of you? Are you going to be tempted to try to create an image of yourself that's something that you're not? Are you going to go out of your way to be a people pleaser? Will you be crushed and angry if the attempts that you make to get approval aren't met with the response you think they deserve? Are you try to set people up to prove that they don't love you? Becoming divisive. What is it that you want? Is it power? Is it respect? Is it dignity? Is it a sense of influence? Instead of being the man who takes responsibility and just has leadership flow to him, are you going to start to demand it, require it, grasp for it? Are you going to find weak people to lead to prove that you're a leader and a big man? You're going to build a little mini cult of your own and prove that you're able to love and lead people better than the actual leaders God set over the church? Like Absalom standing in the gate? If only I were king. Are you ruled by your basis impulses, by your stomach, by your pants, by your lust and your greed? Will you be tempted to carve out space for your lusts? Are you going to be tempted to make space to be that way by accusing people who confront you of your sin, of being mean, not understanding you, being unkind, bouncing from one person to the next, pitting people against each other, throwing everybody under the bus, making people feel sorry for you? They just don't understand me. They don't understand how hard it is for me. I try really hard. It's never enough for anybody. They just yell at me and make me feel bad. It's because of my childhood. It's because of my past. It's because of my brokenness. And really, I just don't want to give up my sin and deal with it. I just want to be a victim. I want to feel bad while still giving myself over to my lusts and sins. Now I've got everybody who's tried to help me fighting with each other. You weren't gentle enough. You were too mean. You weren't strong enough. You weren't. And really, it's just, I've got all of you fighting out there so that I can have my sin and, and eat it too. My cake and eat it too. Are you the kind of person who's tempted to be jealous and envious of other people? Do you want what you don't have and what other people have? Is nothing ever good enough for you? Can you not be content with what God's given you? Are you angry that you don't have the things that come to other people? Do you want to take away what they have? Do you want to take vengeance on people that are happier than you? Are you like Judas who says to the woman who pours out her perfume all over Jesus, well, if you were godly, you would give that money to the poor. Just trying to punish somebody. Because you want it for yourself. You can't have it. They shouldn't either. Are you bitter deep down, thinking you deserve all the good things to come to you? If you don't get it, you're angry. 
This is us. This is us when we don't deal with our appetites. These are our temptations and they're how we will become divisive people if we don't keep a close watch on our hearts. If we don't discipline our desires and our appetites and put our sin to death and protect our hearts from bitterness. Because Paul says these are people in the church. And that's who we are. We're people in the church. So it is us that he's warning us against, right? These are our temptations. They are how we will become divisive people. And the divisive person is just the person like us who's just been tempted to keep crossing those lines over and over and over again. And so they're not just the kinds of people we have to avoid becoming, they're also the kinds of people that we need to watch out for. It's both. We need to watch out for them so we can avoid them, he says. But they're not always obvious, so Paul tells us what to watch out for. First, he says their motivations are off. It smells wrong. It's not right. They appear to be driven by love and kindness and uh, service to Jesus, but they're actually driven by their appetites. Sometimes you can see it. Sometimes you can't. Over time, it becomes more and more obvious. Who's driven by their appetites? And then he tells us what their tactics are. How do they do it? He says they use smooth and flattering speech. In my experience, the most divisive people are people who are driven by bitterness and anger and jealousy and fear. And they're usually all sort of bound up together. Maybe beneath all that, some kind of pain or hurt. Maybe they've had a hard life or a sob story. They're victims of some kind. They've never actually been healed and they don't want to be healed. They just want to be angry. They deserve better from God, from other people. So their pain and their brokenness is a weapon. They may not know that's who they are. They may not know they're divisive and bitter and angry. They may not know that they have made themselves into a tool of the devil. But here's how you tell. They're ruled by their appetites and they assume that you are too. So they come to you and appeal to your appetites to your weaknesses and your temptations. So are you tempted by that desire for love and acceptance? They try to make you feel like the only person who truly loves you and understands you, who sees you, who gets you. Are you tempted to think that you don't have the dignity and respect you deserve? They say, yeah, yeah, nobody sees your true value except for me. I see it. They're just threatened by you. They're trying to keep you down. They want all the power for themselves. I see that you should have it. Are you tempted by your lusts and baser desires? Maybe they just appeal to those. Or maybe they have a lustful conversation that feeds your lust in theirs while trying to be spiritual about it. Are you tempted to be bitter or discontent or jealous? They'll fan the flame of your sense of entitlement. Divisive people can do all these sorts of things with varying degrees of sophistication. Some people are really stupid and clunky about it. You know, just, 
oh boy, you're so great, that person's so stupid. It's just really obvious dumb flattery, right? But there are some people that are really sophisticated and smart about it. Whether they're good at it, whether they're bad at it, you can tell this kind of person because they operate by smooth talk and flattery. These are people who want to work you. They want to manipulate you. They want to play you. They want to play on your fears and your desires, your doubts, your insecurities. And if they're really good at it, like Satan, they'll become masters of triangulation because the goal is to divide, to insert themselves between you and everybody else. They're driven by their appetites. What they want is for you to look at them as the superior person. They come between you and other people. I see that you're scared and afraid. I can see. I understand how scared and afraid you are. I see the same threats and dangers that you do. I can keep you safe. I see that you're alone and that you feel neglected, but I'm not going to neglect you. I see that you're hungry for praise and validation. Let me just give you exactly what you want. can be very smooth. It can come wrapped in the package of, I really understand you, I really see you, I really get it, I love you, I care about you, I'm worried, I'm concerned. The other thing Paul says they do is they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine we've been taught. So what we're really talking about here is Judaizers. People who set up their opinions as law, like we spent several weeks on in Romans 14. In the early church, there were people who came and said, in order to be truly godly, you need to be circumcised. Or you need to never eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Or you need to adopt all of the Jewish Old Testament dietary laws. They create hoops and standards you have to jump through to prove your godliness. And that can be really appealing, actually. Because grace is free and we want to pay for it. We don't have faith that Christ can save us just out of his own love and kindness. We want to pay. We want to sacrifice. We want to work for the feeling of godliness. We want it to feel like we've done something hard. And the real work is embracing the freedom we have in Christ. But it's much easier to adopt a strict dietary law where it feels like we're sacrificing something. And then if we do that, then maybe we don't actually have to deal with what's inside of our hearts. Because we're working really hard to control what goes into our mouths. We don't have to think so much about what's coming out of our hearts. So modern examples of this are, they're all kinds, right? It's much easier to adopt a very specific form of education for our kids, a model, a curriculum that we think is intrinsically godly, than to have to engage our kids and disciple them with faith and discernment. We let the system and the choice and the opinion do the work. We exercise all our faith up front. We've chosen it all here. Now that is the definition of godly child rearing. And then we create a barrier and a standard. And unless you've met the criteria that we've set, you're doing it wrong. We look down on you. You're not truly godly, really godly people 
do exactly what we do because we thought about it and we're very smart and we came to the right opinions and we can't even accept that maybe there's another valid opinion because then it feels like, oh no, maybe we were wrong. And the whole point was for us to feel especially godly. So it was the godly choice. And if you didn't make that same exact choice, then you're just kind of like not as godly as we are. Godly people homeschool. Godly people private school. Godly people use this curriculum. It doesn't matter. And it's not just things like education or how you raise your kids. There's all kinds of things with how you raise your kids, right? Right? Just like be a new mom for the first time and just wait for everybody to come and tell you. Unless you breastfeed, unless you bottle feed, unless you time it, unless you don't, unless you use cloth diapers, unless you use... This just never ends. Good luck. It's not just that sort of thing. It can be doctrinal things, like coming to the right conclusions about things that aren't as clear in Scripture as other things, like the end times. When it comes to the end times, there are some things that are clear and non-negotiable, right? Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. The righteous will live with him forever. The unrighteous will go on to everlasting torment in hell. There are some other things that aren't as clear as that. The barriers we place can also be superficial and earthly. If you shop at Target, you are a bad person because Target is an evil company. They have transgender bathrooms, and it's one-to-one. If you shop at Target, you're not godly. Okay, now listen. That's a fine personal decision to make, right? We get to choose where our money goes. We get to choose the companies that benefit from the things we buy. It's a good line to draw to say there are certain companies that won't get my money. But it's a bad standard to set for other people. In 2020, churches had to come to conclusions about closing doors and enforcing masks. Very few churches were ready for it. They were all caught flat-footed. And that was a big opportunity for a lot of people to say, unless you're doing it my way, whatever way that is, you cannot possibly be godly. All the way from your killing grandma to you are enabling tyranny if you submit to one thing. And good, well-meaning churches made a lot of mistakes. Over the course of this next year, there may be any number of other things like that that are forced on us where we as a church have to make decisions. And you know what I want? It's for us to live in unity and to be committed to unity. And to not act like every decision is the be-all, end-all, or that it's impossible to come back for a mistake. Because things may not be very clear. Why would I say that? Let's talk about it for a minute. Let's say there's another virus. Some of you are going to think, we've seen this, it's a sham. Let's ignore everything. And some of you are going to be like, well, I don't know, maybe it's for real. We should be cautious. And some of you are going to think, they want us to think it's a sham and this is going to kill us all because they want us dead. And how many of you think the information is just going to be like really clear and obvious? Like we can just trust whatever we see 
on TV. There'll be decisions that have to be made based on what information is available. And it won't be as clear as we want it to be. That I can guarantee. We'll have to make decisions. We'll have to live with those decisions. We may make mistakes. We'll have to live with those mistakes. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean we don't argue. It doesn't mean that we, we don't make mistakes. It means we're committed to unity. We don't want to hit the next big thing and split and let Satan win. Okay, so there are Judaizers, people who divide by majoring on the minors. And there's all the other divisive people that we've talked about. And here's the thing, this is something we have to realize. If this kind of divisiveness gets bad enough, if it metastasizes, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing you can do. Divisive people are not the kind of people that we can help. There are all kinds of people that we can help. But the divisive person is not one. They may have puppy dog eyes. They may have a sob story. But God says they're beyond your help. Simply avoid them. Mark and avoid. Have nothing to do with them. And then know this, as soon as you do that, they're going to weaponize Scripture against you and try to make you look like the divisive person. Because they're experts in smooth talk and flattery, and there are all kinds of people that want to believe that we're the bad guy. I was just trying to help them. I was just loving them. I'm really confused. They said they loved me. They treated me so poorly. Then they kicked me to the curb. Are there people in your life who are divisive? cause divisions and create obstacles through smooth talk and flattering speech. If you're not avoiding them, you're disobeying God. If you're making space for them, you're disobeying God. If you're trying to save them, you're disobeying God. You're making yourself vulnerable. And you're making the naive people around you who trust you, who see you interacting with divisive people, vulnerable. You need to stop. Jake, how do I tell the difference between a divisive person and someone who just has a strong opinion or is having a bad day? You'll know them by their fruit. We're not talking about someone who's a little crusty every once in a while, a little uptight. We have those people. We're not talking about people who have bad days. We have those people. We all have to fight our appetites. We all have to fight jealousy and bitterness. The question is, is that the exception or is it the rule that dominates our lives? Is it the pattern? There are people who deal with stuff and repent. And there are people who, despite what they say, Despite the appearance of repentance, divisiveness is the pattern of their lives. So is bitterness and anger. Such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
Here's what he's saying. Some of you are naive. That makes you vulnerable to divisive people. And what we want is to be wise, discerning, so that we can tell the difference between somebody who serves Jesus and somebody who serves only themselves. So we can tell the difference between good speech that builds up and smooth and flattering speech that appears to build up while tearing down and dividing. They can look a lot alike. There's a thing about being naive. We spent two summers back to back studying the book of Proverbs. And one of the things that we learned is that being naive and being foolish and being gullible is morally wrong. It's morally culpable. You don't have to be that way and you don't have to stay that way. And in fact, you should not stay that way. And if you do, it is sin. Because we are commanded by God to pursue wisdom and God gives us the tools to do that. And when we turn to James, God's going to say to us, if you ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. To not pursue wisdom and to not ask for it. To be comfortable in our naivete and folly and gullibility is wrong and sinful. We have an obligation to pursue wisdom and to grow in it and to not be naive and to not be foolish, but to grow and to give ourselves to a life of growth so that we are less and less susceptible to being manipulated by evil people wherever they are. We all start out in life naive. We're just kids. Kids are naive. They've not learned the ways of this world. That's why they're placed in the care of parents that love them that they can just trust. God willing, by God's design, that's how it's supposed to work. But mom and dad then have an obligation to teach and model wisdom for their kids and set them on a path of wisdom. So that when they grow up, they can see and discern. And many of us, when we first became Christians, were also naive. We were new to all this stuff. And it's hard to tell the difference between who was serving Jesus and who was serving only themselves. And that's why in the church, we all need moms and dads, faithful men and women who will lead us and teach us and disciple us and help us learn what is good and how to be innocent as to what is evil. If we don't have that, we're vulnerable to being used, to being taken advantage of, to being corrupted by the bitterness and anger and divisiveness of wicked people. Naive people are constantly in danger of falling prey to the evil out there and the evil in their own hearts. So don't be naive. If you're new to the faith, you still feel, yeah, I feel naive, I feel gullible. There's a lot of times I feel like I don't know who to trust. You find trustworthy people who have borne fruit over a long period of time. They're there to help you. By God's grace, that's what this church is and is meant to be full of. You need shepherds and pastors and elders who are wise, who can tell the difference between good and evil, who will yield the staff against the wolves. God gave us each other for a reason. We need each other. We don't have to do all the work of discernment on our own. And maybe this whole thing still has you scared, though. 
But that's why God says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All this stuff, division, manipulative people, people ruled by their appetites, all this satanic spiritual warfare of it all, none of it's new to God. He's been dealing with it for a long, long time. It's not a new fight for him. The serpent has been trying to divide us since Adam and Eve, and God has been crushing his head every time it pops up, ever since. And the victory is his, because Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. He wins. Satan loses, Jesus wins. We are in Jesus, and that means that we win. Satan can't win. It's not possible. It doesn't mean that we can relax. The warning exists for a reason, and it's real. It's a fight until the end, but it's a fight with God on our side. God himself will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of Jesus will be with us to the end. So we can have hope for that work, for the work of dealing with our appetites, for the work of avoiding those people among us who have given themselves over to bitterness and to their appetites and who would divide us, difficult as that may be. Okay. A couple more verses, let's wrap it up. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. Okay, just final greetings. These are people who are with Paul, good dudes, shepherds, leaders, people that he trusts. Timothy, we know, right? He's Paul's right-hand man his son in the faith, his fellow worker, just his guy. If there is a guy, if Paul has a guy, it's Timothy. There's some other dudes there. Lucius and Jason and Sosipater are all guys who show up in the book of Acts. We see them around, the guys who were just there when things got bad. There's this guy named Tertius who wrote the letter. You thought Paul wrote it, you were wrong. Tertius is just a secretary. He's a scribe. Paul's often dictating his letters in prison, right? He's in chains. He's also got, uh, at least there's good reason to believe he has bad eyesight. Tertius is a scribe. Fun fact about this final sermon, uh, Nathan wrote part of it. Because I dictated it to him. Because I was having trouble, I was having some difficulty getting my thoughts down. He was like, come over. I sat down on the couch and I just started talking and he started typing. That's all in here. So Tertius, he's the kind of guy that Paul could trust, right? Gaius is the host of the church where Paul's writing from. He's a generous guy. Erastus is a man of influence in the city. He's the city treasurer, right? So God's got his people all over the place. Uh, Quartus is probably a slave. Probably because slaves would often just get numerical names if you were born into slavery. Quartus was four, slave number four, probably. We don't know. These are men who are, so, so you've got city treasurer and you've got 
It's like just, and these are Paul's guys. All together in the church. Men positioned by God to use their gifts and influence to build the kingdom wherever God called them. We want more of that, top to bottom. And then the final words of this letter, sometimes called a doxology, sometimes called a benediction. Just words of worship and praise. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Needs to be strengthened? Feel weak? To him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, everything we've been talking about for a year and however long it's been. The good news of righteousness, Jesus given for all your sins. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. According to the the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This is once a mystery, it was a secret, now it's open. It was once in a tiny corner of the world, third the size of Indiana, now it's spreading to every nation on earth. And the point, obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Go from here, obey God from faith. And to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of serving this church and preaching through the book of Romans. Thank you for the work that you've done in our lives, our hearts, and my life through this book over the past year and a half. Pray that you would seal it on our hearts, that you would continue to use it to transform us as a church, and that you would bless it and cause it to bear fruit for years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.